Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the AMR Studio. Today, we are featuring an interview that Jenny did with David Hian from the Pew Charitable Trust back in the 20th of May, when they looked a little bit into David's story, backstory onto how he got into AMR work, but also about the very good and incredible work that the Pew Charitable Trust is doing to support policy and to get results, real life results of how the AMR problem is affecting the healthcare settings in the US. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to this month's interview. We have a special guest, Dr. David Hien, who's here to talk to us today. And uh, could you please introduce yourself a little bit to our audience? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's great to be speaking with you. So, yeah, my name is David Hien, and I am the a project director for the Antibiotic Resistance Project here at the Pew Charitable Trust. Our offices are based in Washington, D.C. in the United States. We are a policy research organization that strives to find um, solutions to many different aspects of civic life, civic and public life, through policy solutions. So the Pew Charitable Trust has a large portfolio of work um, that spans from environmental work all the way to healthcare work. The Antibiotic Resistance Project is one of those healthcare portfolios. The approach that we are taking at Pew for the issue of antibiotic resistance is comprehensive. We see this issue as having two sides of the same coin. One is the important need to reduce um, the amount of antibiotics that are being used in mm-hmm. um, wherever it's being used, and that includes healthcare settings as well as animal agriculture. And the best way to reduce that is to reduce the inappropriate and unnecessary prescribing that is currently occurring. The other side of the coin is that there's a strong need to reinvigorate the antibiotic pipeline. Um, Currently, there's just not enough um, research and development occurring where the pace of new antibiotics being discovered and developed and being made available to the patients is just not keeping up with the pace of the emergence of resistance. Those are the areas that we primarily focus on. And as I mentioned before, um, we do our work to try to use both governmental and non-governmental policies to try to find the solutions. So if I understand correctly, it's a little bit of advocating for policy changes regarding the use of antibiotics and the development of antibiotics, but there's also a lot of kind of research that's being done through the help of Pew. There's um, data that's being brought forth for Pew. It's not just about advocating. It's a level of research and dissemination of information and advocating. Yeah. It's, It's pretty broad. I think. I mean, I, I've always kind of heard of the Pew Charitable Trust, but I didn't really understand what it was until recently when I started looking it up for this interview. I mean, the Pew Trust seems to take on a lot of difficult, challenging issues. Have you felt that antibiotic resistance is one that you can make some progress in? Do you feel like there's been some progress made with the help of the Pew Trust? I mean, that's a difficult question. It's Everybody kind of feels like with antibiotic resistance, we're kind of just doing our best, of course. But how do you feel about it? Yeah, no, it's a good question. It's a difficult question because the issue is so complex of, mm-hmm. the, of how we go about solving the issues that surround and factor into antibiotic-resistant infections. Yeah, Pew typically engages in specific areas where they see a opportunity or a momentum mm-hmm. that signals there's going to be a high chance of success if Pew enters a space and helps push the policies along. And we have seen a lot of progress in just 
you know, in the past decade. Um, Pew has been in this space for over a decade. It really started okay. with the animal antibiotic stewardship work, but then it expanded into including innovating new antibiotics and then mm-hmm. um, antibiotic stewardship in healthcare settings. And during that time period, there has been significant policy changes in the United States that has impacted the way antibiotics are being used. Um, you probably heard that a little over a decade ago, one of the most common reasons antibiotics were being used in food animal production or animal agriculture was for growth promotion, yeah. to make sure, maximize, I guess, the, the size of the food animals. And um, a few years ago, in 2017, FDA announced a new guidance rule for, for industry that, um, that prohibits using antibiotics um, for the purposes of growth promotion. And that has led to a, somewhere around 30 to 35% reduction of total antibiotics being used in the animal sector. So that's one example. Yeah, that's a great concrete example. Yeah, yeah. As you say, it's a great method of really kind of focusing on, okay, we have these issues, maybe these are places where we can actually target and really work for a difference, a change. Can you tell a little bit about what's being done on the um, development side? Yeah, so one of the main challenges on the innovation side for trying to get new antibiotics made available is um, the issues surrounding the, the markets of antibiotics yeah. um, and how um, hospitals, for instance, are reimbursed for antibiotics or what the revenue looks like for um, pharmaceutical companies after they've invested a lot of money into R&D. What the main issue here is that there is this tension in the current market setup where if a drug company invests a lot of time and, and funding to create a new, much needed antibiotic that mm-hmm. addresses a specific you know, pattern of drug resistance. The best way to use that new drug is to make sure that it's only used when it's absolutely needed because it's such a valuable asset for the public, from a public health and, and from a patient care standpoint. Because anytime you use the antibiotics over and over again, you accelerate the chance of bacteria evolving and learning to resist that new agent. Mm-hmm. So the key is to use that only when it's needed. So this is where antibiotic stewardship principles come in. And, and that's, the, that's the right way to do it. We want to make sure we extend the shelf life of the new antibiotic as much as we can. The problem is, from a market standpoint, where we have any pharmaceutical drugs that are being used in human healthcare is valued by volume of sales or volumes, volume of use. Mm-hmm. And that's where the tension exists, where we need to be judicious with the use of these new antibiotics that come on the market. But then at the same time, that means that the pharmaceutical companies that are producing it are going to have a difficult time sustaining manufacturing and maintaining access um, for patients because they, it, that part takes a lot of capital to bring up the operational side of things. And they usually cannot recoup those costs. And what that has led to is a lot of these small pharmaceutical companies that have done a lot of work in this space and invested into developing new antibiotics. We've seen it two prominent examples in the last three years where they went bankrupt after getting an FDA approval um, for a new antibiotic for that exact reason. Which is kind of historically against what people have said would be the problem. It's, it's kind of always sounded like, oh, the goal is if you just get approved, it'll be fine. And then there's these recent examples where we see that that's not the case. You can reach yeah. market and still fall because it's so based on sales and you don't want to sell it too much. Exactly. It's, it's a central aspect of the antibiotics. Th- those are really last line things, but you need them to be there. Exactly. They're super crucial to have, but 
you don't want to use them. I do kind of want to tie in from this because I know you have a background in medicine. Uh, and I wonder if you could maybe introduce a little bit how you came into this field, because I feel like that's a very personal experience that maybe has contributed to your interest in the field as well. I mean, speculating, of course, but uh, I can imagine that it does affect you. Yeah. Um, so I've been at Pew now for almost six years. Mm-hmm. Um, and prior to joining to Pew, I was, as you mentioned, um, I'm a pediatric infectious disease physician. So I was practicing and working as an attending at a children's hospital here in Washington, D.C. But that's where I really started during those seven years at, at, the, at the children's hospital. That's where I started my work and interests and on antibiotic stewardship and, and antibiotic resistance. A lot of it was because back then antibiotic stewardship was a pretty novel concept. Um, yeah. Fortunately, we're at a place now where hospitals are now expected, all hospitals are expected to have some form of antibiotic stewardship program, which is a great thing. Um, but also as an infectious disease doctor, you know, and, and this is not just me, this is all my colleagues in this field, you, you see a lot of cases in my situation, children who do have, you know, multi-drug resistant infections. In some cases, um, you know, we've all faced situations where we just you know, we didn't have any antibiotics available to use to treat because it was, you know, the, the, the lab testing comes back and saying it's resistant to everything that we have mm-hmm. available. And then that's when we have to start, you know, reaching into uh, the medicine cabinet and dust off some of these old drugs that we long retired ago because of high toxicity or other safety concerns. And, and we start having to go back to some of these less than ideal medications. And I think a lot of that, that kind of clinical perspective sort of helps remind me in my current position and my current work in the policy world about um, the urgency and, you know, why we're all working on this issue. It, it crystallizes it for me. I think especially if I've understood right, especially working with children, a lot of the newer antibiotics maybe aren't approved for children. It's not really a, I mean, this is the same thing we see with other current situations. Uh, there's a lot of drugs that come to market that haven't been tested on children. That's not really the target goal they're maybe looking for. It's it's more complicated and it's, of course, difficult to maybe justify testing drugs on children. So I can imagine that it's amplified. This issue is, you know, amplified in, in children's medicine and in children's infectious disease medicine. But also, as you say, I mean, I work completely in the lab. I look at bacteria. I find that super interesting. But you kind of get the wrong perspective sometimes and you sit there and like, oh, we found this new mechanism of resistance. That's really cool. Oh, wait, that's not a good thing. It's it's It sometimes requires reminding yourself of what this means for other people. And I think it's a great background to have had that experience. I mean, as tragic as it is to have had that experience of seeing somebody where treatments either failed or wouldn't have worked. You have to, like you say, go into the, the back corner of the medicine cabinet and use things that you know aren't going to be ideal for your patient. It must stay with you for a long time. Yeah, no, I, I mean, some of those patients and parents in our situation, mm-hmm. it, it does stick with you. I, I think for, I, I can, I think of things that happened, you know, 15, 20 years ago that I still have a strong memory of, even going back to my, you know, training days as a resident and fellow. So it is a good reminder, but it's also a good example of how to frame the issue of antibiotic resistance to, yeah. um, to everybody, to the general public as well, because a lot of times antibiotic resistance is typically framed in a very, what may be perceived as a pretty abstract kind of um, threat mm-hmm. that doesn't feel immediate to a lot of folks. And this is this is kind of the way you can kind of bring in these examples of patients and survivors who went through this 
to provide a face and a, and a real world story to to this issue. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion regarding you know how to best communicate the antibiotic resistance issue, how to improve the general knowledge about it, and people wanting to advocate about it and push for you know policymakers to make the right choices. And uh, from what I've understood, the most effective way in many cases is patient stories, hearing somebody who was affected, because it reminds you, you know, that could have been me. You identify with this person in that way. But I've also realized it might be kind of difficult. I mean, it's very personal. It's hard to ask patients to put something out there that is incredibly personal and probably reminds them of a very tough time. And it might be things they continue to deal with long-term effects of. And it's a lot to put on them. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. And at Pew, you know, through our antibody resistance project, we, we hold an annual event. The last one had to be virtual for obvious reasons yeah. called uh, Stand Up to Superbugs, where we're inviting advocates and ambassadors to speak on this issue on the Hill to their elected representatives to really impress upon them the need for federal investment and action on these issues. And these are patients or yeah. previous patients that have personal experiences? Mm -hmm. okay. It's a mix, mix of people from uh, various backgrounds. We, we have um, patient survivors mm -hmm. who tell their stories of um, going through uh, and being treated for antibiotic uh, resistant infections. Many of them were life threatening. Um, we have parents who lost loved ones to antibiotic resistant infections. And then we also have, you know, infectious disease doctors, uh, infectious disease researchers, and then animal farmers who mm -hmm. um, who are strongly advocating for you know judicious use of antibiotics. But going back to your uh, what you were saying earlier, the stories that the patient survivors and families who lost their loved ones to antibiotic infections is is indeed very powerful. Um, when they're talking to policymakers about the issue, and it does really kind of bring things into a, a pretty sharp focus. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like a great initiative. I mean. Antibiotic resistance is often presented in the sense of numbers, largely because a lot of us have some kind of research background and we like numbers. But there's this whole human side of it that it's great that you guys are really using that. I'm guessing a lot of these people are happy to tell their story, too, because they want to change. They, they know firsthand and they want to help push for a change. But speaking on that note, I know in the U.S. there's recently been some promising efforts politically. There's the Pasteur Act. We um, at Pew are, are very supportive of the Pasture Act. Um, and just for the listeners, uh, this particular legislation is trying to solve what I mentioned earlier mm -hmm. about the market challenges of how antibiotics are reimbursed for. And, and the Pasture Act really is designed to do what we call it. We delink this relationship where antibiotics are being paid for by volume of use, but rather the, the Pasture Act creates this funding mechanism for drug companies to give them a lump, you know, give them a, a, a set amount of reimbursement. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's one of many. I mean, there's globally different ways that have been yeah. tested or are t being tested or looked at to try to change this market reimbursement model. Uh, we've talked about a few of them before, but the Pasteur Act, we've only kind of mentioned that it's, you know, a push in the U.S. I think it's focusing a lot on market entry rewards, if yes. I remember correctly. Yeah. Yes, and, it, and it's very it's very analogous, has the similarities to the U.K., mm -hmm. um, subscription model um, as well. So it's considered to be, a, that's another term that's being used to um, describe how the delinkage is happening is that this will be a subscription model. Yeah. It's nice to see a push. And I thought it was especially nice in the US to see it as a bipartisan push. I mean, that's not always what you see with these sort of things. But it was nice to see that this issue maybe can override some of the partisan issues in the US right now. And for for the most part, 
you know, when, we, when we're talking on the Hill or with the administration, when it comes to AMR issues, that's been our experience that um, not, not just past year, but generally there is a strong bipartisan support uh, to prioritize, you know, funding and, and efforts at the federal level to, to address this issue. So, yeah, this um, legislation was originally introduced last year and had bipartisan sponsors. Um, and then um, it, we're anticipating it will be reintroduced sometime this year. Okay, that's great to hear. But speaking of, we've mentioned a little bit about our current era that we're living in, this uh, unique time. I know you mentioned that the Pew Charitable Trust has done some work looking at the effects of the COVID pandemic on the AMR issue, specifically looking at how antibiotics have been prescribed. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the results from that work that you've done? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned up front, we do, we do a lot of research that are designed to inform our thinking on how to develop, how to adjust, mm -hmm. how to look at policy solutions. Um, and obviously for everybody, COVID-19 has been front and center in, in everybody's mind the past year and a half. So last year, as we were trying to think through, or we started asking how would the COVID-19 pandemic and, uh, and the response um, mm -hmm. from the healthcare sector and the government could that impact positively or negatively in a way that um, when it comes to AMR issues, and we were specifically focused on antibiotic prescribing patterns as, as since antibiotic stewardship is one of our main areas of work. Um, so we conducted a research for the United States using a EHR database from IBM Watson to look at antibiotic prescribing patterns during the first six months of the pandemic, so to speak, mm -hmm. so from February of 2020 through end of July, and look at how antibiotics were being used for those patients who were being treated for COVID-19. What we found was a little over half of the patients, it was 52% of the patients um, received an uh, antibiotic, and these are patients who were hospitalized for COVID-19. In the same assessment, in, in our analysis, we looked at as best as we could, how many of these patients were diagnosed with a bacterial infection during that same hospital stay? Mm -hmm. Because as you know, antibiotics, it, it's not beneficial to treat COVID itself, no. uh, the, the, which is a viral illness, obviously. But we wanted to see, you know, does the number of patients who receive antibiotics, does that number, does that percentage match up with the percentage of patients that were diagnosed or uh, diagnosed by their clinicians of having a bacterial infection? And that number was much lower. We only saw 20, about 20% of the patients had a diagnosis of a community-acquired bacterial pneumonia. Mm -hmm. And that's even, a, that was a, probably most likely a very generous estimate because this was based on diagnosis code. So it was, it was, you know, it included cases that clinicians suspected. Yeah, they weren't all laboratory confirmed cases. Exactly, exactly. But even in that kind of generous estimation, we, there was a significant gap with the percentage of patients that received antibiotics and the percentage of patients that would had a bacterial infection. And that's where our conclusions were drawn from, that there appears to be a significant room for improvement mm -hmm. on this. And one last thing I'll point out that we found in our research was that the significant majority of these antibiotics that were given were given during the first 48 hours of the mission. And that tells us that most likely the, the reason for the antibiotics being used in these patients were for what is called empiric therapy. So this is when antibiotics are being given to patients in the absence of a confirmation, um, mm -hmm. whether it's a clinical or diagnostic confirmation. During that period, it, it covers the patients just in case that they may have a bacterial infection. And empiric therapy in itself is not a bad thing. You know, it's, it's, it's actually needed for a lot of bacterial infections. Sepsis is a good example. There's been a huge push in the United States 
the past several years to make sure that when a septic patient comes in through the hospital doors, that it's recognized quickly. And antibiotics have started right away, even, even if the confirmation from blood cultures or other cultures come back 24, 48 hours later. And that, that matters. It's a very life-saving situation. So we can definitely understand in the early months of the pandemic why this happened, because mm-hmm. it's a novel pathogen. Clinicians were working with very limited research data on what the natural course of COVID-19 infection itself looked like. They didn't know what percentage of patients typically have bacterial infections. So it's understandable why most of these were given empiric therapy. I think the final conclusion we're drawing from here is that, yes, this was during the first six months, but it points us towards um, looking at solutions of antibiotic stewardship for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, first and foremost, how do we make sure that antibiotic stewardship programs are helping these clinicians in the front line make these antibiotic decisions specifically for COVID-19, especially now that we have more data uh, accumulated. But looking further ahead, I think it's also important to take this example to strengthen our stewardship approaches in a way that anticipates what happened at the early stages of the COVID-19 and try to find a way to strengthen the stewardship programs where there could be a more systematic guidance and help being provided to frontline care workers and when it comes to antibiotic use, especially when the novel pathogen is viral and it's not yeah. a bacterial pathogen. I do wonder, was there any way to connect the patients that were given antibiotics to the time if they were mainly towards the beginning of the six months or towards the end? And I'm thinking if it's a little bit of, in the beginning, there was a lot of chaos and sure, it was very hard. I mean, everywhere, globally, it was hard to get enough testing. It was hard to be sure. It was hard to, I mean, we were lucky enough that there was a test very early on. But it was still a messy situation from what I, without any healthcare experience, understand. Was it more common in the early months? Was there any way to see that? Or I know that most of the cases you actually looked at were in July, which I found was very interesting. But if it's skewed to one side or the other, do you know? Yeah. And and, I mean, that's a very important question that our research was not able to answer. No, it's a very hard thing to identify. Yeah. Yeah. And it's because... The distribution of the cases you mentioned, you're right, it, it, the cohort that we looked at, mm-hmm. the majority of the cases were in the summer, um, mm-hmm. starting in late May and then June and July were had the highest number of cases. But it's also because we were using a data set from IBM Watson where there was higher representation of facilities submitting data from certain regions in the country that were having their essentially their first major surge wave. Of, of COVID-19 last year. And th- these were um, southern states and midwestern states. Yeah. If I understand right, it was mainly like the west and the northeast where the first waves in the U.S. were, which was the areas that weren't so represented in the data. And it was a bit interesting right. because after there's a little bit of knowledge or a little bit of experience, not locally, but like a national perspective. No, that, I, I completely agree with you. And, and it's another example where you know, the region matters, even in, mm-hmm. even in the United States. And yes, the Northeast and the Western states, the, those were the states that were first impacted in the spring months of last year, mm-hmm. of 2020, um, during the early stage of the COVID pandemic. And then the cohort we looked at was, like I said, in the South and Midwest region, um, where they were experiencing a major surge for the first time. So I think, I think that regional experience also matters um, yeah. when it comes to antibiotic prescribing. Just to kind of slightly switch tracks here, but it, it's interesting too, because we have known that antibiotic prescribing in general, especially in the outpatient space, there is a lot of regional variability within the United States. And, mm-hmm. um, and we usually break it down by the federal government definitions of the census regions. But the southern states typically have a much more higher prescribing rate for outpatient prescribing 
for outpatient antibiotic use um, than the Western states. So it's another example where, you know, region matters. I think just to put a cap on what you asked earlier, you know, I think you were pointing to, is there a learning curve in these kind of situations? Like, mm-hmm. we, could we expect, yes, there may have been a high level of antibiotic use in the first beginning months of the pandemic, and then it could have, as experience and diagnostic and therapeutic capacity improves, could that improve? And that's certainly possible, mm-hmm. uh, which would be interesting to see what the data, you know, could look like in more recent months. You know, we, we only looked at it for the first six months. But what does those trend data look like after, you know, another six months? Yeah, it'd be very interesting to see in these uh, second and third waves where you see, the, again, the increasing patients where you could maybe, I, I don't actually know what's common for pneumonia, if it's treated empirically or not, that might, of course, matter. But if we see the same pattern with the second and third waves where you get an increase and in maybe a little bit of the fear or the stress or the stress on the healthcare system that might affect decisions, I'm I'm assuming, if you see the same result, it would be very interesting to see kind of a follow-up of this study and the later waves of the pandemic, if that's possible. That would be a very important data points to look at. Mm-hmm. I think the other potential thing that probably changed over the course of the year is, you know, when we're talking about empiric therapy, which is how antibiotics are primarily used, yeah. diagnostics plays an important role in this, as we mentioned before. And in the United States, getting timely results back for even a COVID test was a challenge in the first few months. It was globally, I think. I mean, differences, but it was definitely not just located to the U.S., that issue. And if you're not getting your, even just the COVID confirmation test back within a certain period of time, especially COVID patients present with symptoms that very much look like bacterial pneumonia. So that was another layer of challenge that we are assuming played a factor. Mm-hmm. into how much antibiotics were being used. It would be interesting to see as the diagnostic challenges for COVID-19 significantly improved um, over the course of the pandemic response, whether that contributed to the amount of antibiotics that were being given for patients. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask, do you know if the proportion of pneumonia, community-acquired pneumonia, is it largely usually in normal circumstances bacterial? or it's, I know there are other viral pneumonias, but my perception as a complete layperson in this thing is that it's mainly bacterial. You know, I don't, I can't remember the actual percentage breakdowns between viral pneumonia and bacterial pneumonia. Certainly viral mm-hmm. pneumonia is possible. Yeah. Um, and a lot of patients who are admitted, uh, who have symptoms that are severe enough from their pneumonia, mm-hmm. typically are bacterial pneumonia patients. Yeah, so they're not outpatients. Uh, I mean, they're, treated, yeah, they, they're yeah. admitted into the hospital. They have to have a certain severity of disease. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just trying to think how that would maybe affect if you don't know what you can do, maybe you just kind of hope it's what it usually is, you know? Yeah, and, and, and that's exactly why and how empiric therapies are used yeah. when it comes to antibiotics. Because if you have a patient comes in with fever, coughing, breathing difficulties, and x-ray looks really, you know, infected, I guess, yeah. is the best way to put it in layman's terms, that could be... A patient with COVID nineteen, or it could be a bacterial pneumonia. It could be it could be either. And so, if the clinicians are limited in how they can rule in or rule out, you know, either viral pneumonia or the bacterial pneumonia, then that's when you you know you rely on the clinician's judgment and say if they're significantly concerned about a bacterial pneumonia as a possibility, then you should cover. You should you should start start the therapy even if you don't have that confirmation back yet. Yeah, but it's a very interesting study, and it's it's one of those things where it would also be very interesting to get a more qualitative perspective. So, like asking. Some people, I mean, it would be, of course, completely arbitrary who you ask, but 
asking a little bit some people who are in that situation, the frontline healthcare workers that were diagnosing these patients, you know, what was going through your mind? Do you personally feel like you maybe prescribed more or were you motivated by, you know, I want to do something. This is what I can do. We we don't know. We aren't sure. Again, I mean, that's an individual basis, but it would be helpful to kind of put some motivation behind these numbers as well. Yeah, absolutely. And at a higher level, the the importance of getting those kind of qualitative data from prescribers has been a more recent area of focus among okay. stewardship research, especially on the outpatient side for outpatient providers. You mean uh, general, not not associated with the pandemic specifically, but in right. general. Right, yeah, yeah, generally speaking. And for instance, this, uh, you may have already heard, you know, there, there's been research that's come out in the last several years that kind of points to patient demand and patient pressure asking for antibiotics as a significant mm-hmm. factor in the decision-making process from the provider's perspective. And a lot of that data came out from, you know, focus group studies and qualitative data analysis about, about how even just the mere perception, the provider's perception that they think their patient is asking for antibiotics, even when the patient may not have, that may not have been the intent, yeah. that alone is sufficient enough to have the provider prescribe antibiotics, even if they know based on their medical knowledge, it may not be justified. Yeah, a lot of this comes down to, you know, human behavior and human interactions, there's a disconnect there. People don't do what they know they maybe should do because we're human and we read in other things into it and we interpret things differently. And I know that I've heard, I can't remember who said this before, but specifically for clinicians, there's the issue of your first priority is always your patient. You want the best for your patient, which might be, I'll give them this antibiotic just in case, but balancing that to like this abstract future collective group of patients that won't have the same potential to get treatment. It's a difficult balance. And I mean, again, no personal experience. I know you have much more experience with that, of course, but uh, from the outside, it sounds like a very difficult balance. It is. And, and, And you bring up a good point about how much behavioral science or the the social behavioral aspects and factors plays a huge role when it comes to antibiotic-prescribing decisions, especially in outpatient settings. And that's where some of the more recent research has tried to find new ways for stewardship interventions or training and education for outpatient providers. It's not just about reinforcing or reminding them through their medical knowledge or treatment guidelines. It's also providing them with the necessary tools to how mm-hmm. to effectively communicate why antibiotics are not needed to their patient, um, and how do how do you diffuse and kind of lighten that perceived patient pressure and demand that the provider is facing. The other aspect of this is, and this is an area where more research is definitely needed, is what you mentioned before. It's hard to, both from a provider's perspective as well as the patient perspective, it's hard to you know, bring in this, the adverse event of inappropriate antibiotic use when it's framed as the adverse effect may not affect this particular individual patient, but it's more a collective public health level adverse event. But at the same time, that's also because, especially from from a physician and provider's perspective, there's been a longstanding assumption that antibiotics are safe. You know, antibiotics have very little to no side effects. And therefore, as you said, if I'm going to give this patient just in case, since I'm not 100% sure that this is just a virus infection, what's the harm? I'm going to just give this patient just in case. But there is now some emergence of data coming out that suggests, you know, antibiotics are not as benign or as free of adverse events and side effects as previously thought. 
there was a recent study a few years ago that came out that showed that all the children who visited the emergency room for a drug allergy, an allergic reaction to some kind of drug, antibiotic mm-hmm. was the number one reason, number one cause for those drug allergy visits. And there's now some movement in trying to quantify and describe what these adverse events look like, especially if they can be tied directly to those that were a result of a prescription that was not necessary to begin with. And how much risk are we putting them? To identify, you know, I mean, we're absolutely not saying don't use antibiotics when they need to be used, but it's hard to say, like, this is the damage caused only by the unnecessary use. It is. And you need a large data set to do yeah. it. But all in all, what this is all pointing to is if we have more data that personalizes the risk of taking antibiotics, especially if it's unnecessary. I mean, there are obviously situations where antibiotics are absolutely necessary. Yeah. In those situations, when you're weighing the risk and the benefit ratio, the benefit of giving antibiotics to a person that has a serious bacterial infection far outweighs the chance of, of adverse events. But that scale completely tips the opposite direction when an antibiotic is being given unnecessarily. And now we're able to quantify, okay, here's what the risk is. There is a risk. It's not yeah. insignificant of patients having adverse uh, effects or side effects that sometimes can even in, in very serious situations could lead to a hospitalization or it could be life-threatening. Yeah, it's definitely not negligible. It's, it's something that needs to be considered as well. We're kind of edging in on something here that we usually like to ask most of the people we interview, which is if there's anything you personally think is missing from antimicrobial resistance research, or if you have some kind of wish list, what you wish would happen moving forward? Yeah, I've kind of alluded to that in my previous comments. I mean, I think looking at this from the perspective of what the work I'm doing right now and the work that Pew is doing right now, and one of the things that we've been trying to prioritize in terms of, especially research around inappropriate antibiotic prescribing, is how do we translate you know the clinical research into outcomes that both the general public and the policymakers can understand and actually viscerally feel the, the impact of it. You know, yeah. and, and, I, and, and this is where what we just talked about is a good example of mm-hmm. if there's research that can show an individual patient, look, this is what could happen to you if you take this antibiotic, especially when it's not needed, your doctor's yeah. telling you it's not needed. Here's all the side effects, all the potential adverse outcomes that could happen mm. and try to kind of crystallize that the outcome and the and the potential impact of the using antibiotics injudiciously at the individual level. And similarly, at the policy level, I think there is need for research to translate this into how much resource is antibiotic resistance costing us for the specific stakeholders. How much are the, you know, in the United States, the public and the private payers, the insurers, how mm-hmm. much are they spending for AR infection or any adverse events that were a, a direct outcome of inappropriate antibiotic use? So I think those are the types of research, at least from where we sit at Pew, would be extremely helpful in terms of both coming up with new policy ideas that could address, you know, how to address AMR and antibiotic stewardship as a whole. I know there's been a little bit of, um, the one that's coming to mind is there was a World Bank report written a few years ago that was talking about how in the future, the effect of the antibiotic resistance problem would be, would cost the world economy about as much as the global recession did back in the, what, 2010s. But I think you bring up a good point that to make policymakers really do something about this, it kind of has to be on a national level. You have to kind of say, you know, in this healthcare setting with these problem levels and whatnot, this is about how much it costs. 
I mean, that's a really difficult number to come to, but that would mean a lot more to say that this is specifically here and this is specifically your domain that you can decide over. This is the cost. I think that would actually make a huge difference in helping uh, policymakers come to terms with what the, the problem actually is. It's, it tends to be a little hard to quantify, especially in money. Yeah. <laughs> and it kind of, when we talk about these initiatives like the Pasteur Act and s similar things that sound like, oh, we're paying tons of money for this and it's just kind of going nowhere, you can kind of balance it out with but this money is already disappearing <laughs> or this is already money being spent. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And the importance of having that data that whoever you're trying to influence their thinking and whoever is controlling the policy levers and the resource levers of this idea of trying to come up with numbers and outcomes as a result of AMR or inappropriate mm -hmm. use that they can actually tangibly feel, right? Because like you said, it's something that it's impacting, directly impacting their area, their, yeah. their, what they control, both from a resource and a management standpoint. And that was also true. It's funny to think about it, how macro or how, mi how micro you can look at this, because that was essentially true 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, when antibiotic stewardship programs was still a pretty new concept for most hospitals and health systems. A lot of those, I guess I would call pioneers of early starters of antibiotic stewardship, that's what they had to do within their individual hospitals and institutions to oh. make the case for their administrators and leadership mm -hmm. to say, this is important. We need, we need support and resource support. We need funding. We need staff. But the most convincing point was when those stewardship researchers provided them with data, just even the mere dollars saved from antibiotics that were not used yeah. as a result of the stewardship. Even just that alone showed a significant margin that justified investment for yeah. the hospitals investing in antibiotic stewardship programs. I mean, it could sound very cynical to say that like that's what helped, but at the same time, that makes the decision so easy. You don't have to bring in the other sides of it. It's it's more about like simplifying the decision, regardless of your opinion of everything else, or regardless of not opinion, but you know, balancing all the other matters. This is a straightforward sums issue yeah. and it balances out and it's worth doing. And the other part of this is that this is once again happens across, you know, there are so many competing priorities for these decision makers, for these policy makers with a finite amount of resources. So these kind of data helps prioritize, move AMR, you know, higher up and make yeah. them come up on higher up on their radar to realize that this is something that they need to focus on. And I, I hate to say it, but I kind of need to wrap up. I could talk forever about this, but is there anything in particular that you'd like to say to our audience before we wrap up? Yeah, you know, I feel like we covered a lot of ground, but I think the last thing, I mean, I, I, and I think that was echoed throughout our conversation, our back and forth is that, you know, we all have a stake in the issues around AMR and solving the issues. Mm -hmm. uh, we, all, we all have a role to play when it comes to, for instance, when we're trying to reduce how much inappropriate antibiotic prescribing is occurring and how to reduce that. And that goes to not just the doctors and the healthcare providers and the and, the, and their healthcare researchers and the infectious disease doctors, but it also comes down to patients. Um, yeah. they, you know, patients have a very important role. We talked about even just a simple idea or a simple fact that patient demand and patient pressure plays a huge role in um, how antibiotics are inappropriately used. Um, so I think it's very important for everybody to be as much as informed as they can be about these mm -hmm. issues. And I, once again, that's where, you know, the, these research that everybody's doing has a lot of value. It's not just meant to inform providers and, and clinicians, but it's also meant to um, educate and bring up to speed the general public and the policymakers on the issues surrounding yeah. AMR. That's a great point. 
All right, we'll have to end there. But uh, thank you very much for talking to us today and good luck with your future work at Pew. This was great. Thanks for having me. And um, yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Welcome back. I hope everybody liked this interview as much as I liked it. Uh, well, <laughs> liked being there and talking about these things with Dr. David Chen. Um, Ava, what did you think about it? It was uh, a pretty enlightening listen because I, I I think we have had a lot of personal stories in the podcast, but I like that this time we were able to interview someone that has been on the forefront of using antibiotics as a doctor, but also now is working more at a global level or at the national level in the US with an organization that is doing great and a lot of work to support policy action, which we know is ultimately very needed in many health issues, but in yeah. particular antibiotic resistance when it comes to, you know, how do we regulate how we use antibiotics, what new antibiotics come into the market. And I understand perfectly that, the you know, one cannot just... Uh, attain to everything that is an issue within AMR, which we know is a lot of different angles and perspectives. But I like that the Pew Charitable Trust is focusing in two things that they really can make a difference on, which is both stewardship and how the antibiotics are actually used in the, in the healthcare settings. And then how do we regulate as well new antibiotics coming into the market so we can have them available when they are needed. So it was really great and refreshing to hear David, that is the director of this subunit at the Pure Charitable Trust, to see how they approach this. And I really enjoy that they are as much as they can basing their work on research and mm -hmm. trying to focus on getting numbers and real data that can support these policymakers into their argument and trying to make yeah. a change. It's it's very evidence-based, but at the same time, incredibly concrete. And they come to conclusions that really help people who are trying to explain the issue, people are trying to convince others in positions of power, positions of change, that it's really necessary and why and why it's kind of a simple answer sometimes mm -hmm. or really trying to make it into a simple answer. I think that's what I really love about it. Mm -hmm. They try to make it such a clear argument. That there's no other way. It has to be exactly. this, you know. It's, it's very productive. <laughs> yeah. And as you were mentioning, yeah, we might think that is cynical, you know, that everything gets kind of distilled to this, is it profitable or not profitable to do this change? But we have to also be honest with ourselves that that's really how the world works right either yeah. something is profitable or it's not profitable and for someone to make a change and to go into something it doesn't it doesn't have to just be ethic to do it but mm -hmm. it has to also make sense from assistance standpoint yeah and i think they are really doing an amazing great work on this so i'm like very stoked that we were able to have them at the show and, and get mm -hmm. pick their brain absolutely and uh, there's one little update I wanted to give here. There was something we mentioned regarding the development of antibiotics side. We did talk a bit about the Pasteur Act in the U.S. briefly. But I just wanted to mention, if you missed our last episode, we did actually update on the progress of the Pasteur Act going through Congress and whatnot in the U.S. Uh, we're not going to talk much about it now. But if you want to hear about that, it is progressing and it sounds great. So if you want to hear more about that, go back to our last episode. I think they must be really happy about the progress that this has happened. This is yeah, I'm sure they are. It's a little too... It, I feel like it's a little bit too bad that it um, came after I, we had this interview. Mm -hmm. This interview was, like you said, in, in earlier in May. And I think the Pasteur Act was moved along in June. Yeah. I also 
think uh, it was really great that you guys had time to talk about the most recent study, which is mm -hmm. the relationship between the COVID pandemic and the increase or decrease of uh, its prescriptions of antibiotics in the healthcare system. And I mean, we can all understand that uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, everything was very unknown, especially in the US, there was a shortage of testing for some time. So doctors and practitioners were kind of in the blind about what was happening and yeah. the most important task of a, of a doctor of course is to take care of the patients they have in front of them so i think it's really interesting that they found the results that we were all expecting which is if you have a respiratory disease you don't really know what it is it might be a bacterial pneumonia you will treat with antibiotics and yeah. that Perhaps a lot of these prescriptions were not really needed, but it's something that empirically makes sense and it had to happen in order to increase the probability of saving those patients that they were in front of them. Um, of course, the results overall is that there's room for improvement, yeah. at least on the time points that they were looking at, which I think to me makes total sense. Um, I think nowadays probably we are on a better situation where we know more about what's happening. We have more tests available it is possible that people come into the icu and then they already have a diagnosis is it the covid or not covid even though the symptomatology or the test might give you similar results so i think if we will have the same as you guys were saying same kind of study done a little bit later in time or the second third fourth wave of covid mm -hmm. i suspect that there will be significantly different results Yeah, I'm sure there would be. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that in the study that we talked about here, because like we said, it's um, the region that they got most of the data from was a little bit later in mm -hmm. this, the pandemic phase, if we should say it that way. But it's still really, I think, symbolic of like kind of what the situation was there. There was, I mean, to be honest, I was almost surprised that there wasn't more prescription of antibiotics, <laughs> but uh, there was definitely prescription prescriptions of antibiotics before any information was known about the situation. And it would be really interesting to get more information about the more qualitative data. You know, what was the motivation behind this? Mm -hmm. And it would be really hard, of course, to tie it to this study specifically, but maybe some kind of interview-based study or questionnaire-based study of frontline healthcare workers in the pandemic. How were you feeling? Do you, did you maybe change your actions based on the situation? Yeah, your, your priorities as well, of course. Maybe mention... You know, were you thinking about antibiotic resistance or did that take a back seat because of the, the dire situation that it was? Mm -hmm. I mean, especially considering that these were people that, that were afraid for their own health many times. I mean, it's not at all to be judgmental about what people, what the decisions people made. That's not at all what I'm talking about. But it would be interesting and very useful, I think, in future pandemics to know what's going through a caregiver's mind mm -hmm. when they're faced with this problem. Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, looking into their minds of this professionals about what are their priorities and of course as we were saying the priority it's always to give the best care you can to your patient yeah that's the but, job of a healthcare worker yeah but what things do they weigh more than others and how do they make their educated decisions of what how mm -hmm. to proceed with the treatment it would be really helpful from a social sciences perspective as well yeah like a behavioral studies it could be very beneficial to know why people did what they did and maybe to think about if it happens again, you know, is there anything we can do to support people in this situation, mm -hmm. both for their own mental health? I mean, maybe people could feel like they have more tools in a panic situation, uh, but also just to, we might be facing, you know, now there's maybe been an increase of antibiotic usage that wasn't necessary. 
it could be worth trying to reduce that risk because we're talking about future issues that could occur. Yeah, indeed. And talking about unnecessary use of antibiotics, I really appreciated as well um, the part of the interview where you guys were talking that uh, for them it's important to get data and to provide evidence about the possible side effects of our adverse effects that taking antibiotics have. And I really appreciated the point that he mentioned if there is a way that we can actually show the adverse effects that are in conjunction with unnecessary prescriptions, that will give us a better or like more strong case to to for these practitioners to have these things in mind and to present it to the patient as well to make perhaps even a um, conjoint decision right with the patient yeah. okay this is what might happen i we could give you antibiotics we could not give you antibiotics it's not completely sure that you have a bacterial inf infection but these are the potential risks with it so i really like that they are putting a hand on that and hopefully there might be some research and some work done in the future to actually get that data and support the healthcare professionals even more in the decision making. Um, what I missed, or perhaps I think it's important to mention now in this review of the interview, is that side effects or adverse effects do not only extend to the to the part of having allergic reactions of something that happens immediately upon taking the antibiotics like he was mentioning a lot of the children that are getting antibiotics then they get admitted because of an allergic reaction yeah or a lot of children that get allergic reactions are caused by yeah a lot of children's allergic reactions are caused by antibiotics yeah exactly so it's an important part of course but it's not the only potential side effect and the other side effects might be a bit more obscure or we don't really so know so much about them or they might present problems in the future not mm -hmm. in the real right now days after taking antibiotics but I think they're also important and it had to be put also in the equation of like okay if I'm giving antibiotics even if they are actually needed what are the potential risks that we might have are we enriching for resistant bacteria in the gut is there a potential increase for transmission of resistant genes within the gut from commensal bacteria to pathogenic bacteria or something as simple as causing fungal infections I mean it's a very common thing that people get yeast infections after antibiotic treatments depending on the antibiotic yeah and that costs money, that costs time, that can cause other problems. Definitely. We talked about it a couple of times, right? About so, so I think I think it's come up before. Yeah. And we, we covered an article looking into candida albicans mm -hmm. uh, infections after after antibiotic treatment. Um and actually today in the news section, which we're gonna go in soon, we are gonna cover uh, an article published in Nature that also looks into this. What are the risks of taking antibiotics? we see an increase in resistant genes or not and also related with probiotics which it might be an additional kind of treatment that people think okay if i'm taking antibiotics i'm depleting my um, commensal bacteria maybe mm -hmm. I think probiotics is good because i'm kind of recompositing so this article yeah. is very interesting we're going to look about that we also want to mention of course don't forget that there is links to the pure charitable trust website and the recent research on the show notes so if you want to see more data if you want to really read the article it's all open access is uh, available you can always go and check it out and see you know what is it the result they made what is the cohort of data they used and all that yeah, highly recommended. Uh, with that, I think we should go on to the news. Yes, great. See you there. 
Welcome to this month's news section at the AMR studio. And this is summertime. There's a lot of people out there. We've had a kind of long interview. So we are going to feature today one article published back on the 5th of July for the August issue of Nature Microbiology titled Probiotics Impact the Antibiotic Resistance Gene Reservoir Along the Human Gastrointestinal Tract in Person-Specific and Antibiotic-Dependent Manner. Jenny, can you distill a little bit this long title for us? I mean, it it is pretty a good explanation of the study, but it is pretty long. So what they basically did uh, was first look at the effect of probiotics on the antibiotic resistance genes in human patients, or mm-hmm. in this case, they were healthy humans that had not taken antibiotics before. Mm-hmm. And in this case, they also looked at a little bit of a comparison between you know, stool samples versus colonoscopy biopsies. And importantly, what they found is that the stool samples weren't really representative of what was going on. These are relatively small sample sizes. They didn't look at large amounts of patients, but they did look consistently and they found some interesting results still. So what they found in these healthy individuals was that giving probiotics actually decreased the amount of antibiotic resistance genes in their gastrointestinal tract. Mm -hmm. And this was better measured with the colonoscopy biopsy results, that sort of thing, rather than the stool samples. So that was great. That sounds nice, right? This was also a bit dependent on a situation of can these patients be colonized by the probiotics or not? Meaning, do the probiotics kind of thrive in the patient? Yeah, so the effect of reducing this number of antibody-resistant genes is depending on the probiotics really doing what they have to do, not just passing through the tract, but actually colonizing and thriving inside the patient. So with this information, they wanted to move on and look at how the effect was on patients that had antibiotic treatment. So at first, what they saw, of course, was that antibiotic treatment did increase the number of antibiotic resistance genes. So basically increase the resistome, as we say, in the patients. And further on, they looked at three different methods of kind of recovery after a patient is given antibiotics. So they looked at uh, fecal transplant, Mm -hmm. they looked at probiotics, and they looked at just spontaneous recovery. So basically, how does the patient's normal microbiome recover after antibiotic treatment disruption? So interestingly, what they found was that both fecal transplant and spontaneous recovery, there was a decrease again in the number of antibiotic resistance genes. So this is good. This is what we're kind of hoping for. It Mm -hmm. may take time, but this is good. With probiotics, this wasn't the case, though. What they saw was that there was a, I believe, even an increase in antibiotic resistance gene abundance, which is not kind of what you would expect, right? You expect probiotics maybe help recovery. Uh, But in this case, very good. They actually go in and look, you know, why is this the case? So they looked at many things. Uh, What are the antibiotic resistance genes that are increasing in abundance in these patients that were given probiotics after antibiotic treatment? Mm -hmm. And they found that the antibiotic resistance genes that were increasing were ones from their commensal bacteria. So bacteria that these patients were otherwise also still carrying that had survived antibiotic treatment basically Mm -hmm. came back at a higher abundance with the probiotic treatment after antibiotic therapy. Mm -hmm. They even looked at the actual probiotic strains and looked for antibiotic resistance genes there, which they did find, but it wasn't the same resistance genes that were really increasing in abundance. So this increase in antibiotic resistance genes did not seem to be based on the actual probiotic strains, Mm -hmm. so the bacterial strains in these probiotics, but rather 
from the patients themselves. Yeah, and I think it's also important to mention that they point out that this is not because the probiotics somehow promote the growth of these commensal bacteria, but it's rather that these commensal bacteria don't get affected so much by the general inhibition that they see um, that happens from these probiotics into the rest mm. of the of the commensal bacteria. So it's kind of like a balance. We have all these different species and then the probiotics come, they inhibit some of the species, but others kind of like, they don't really care. And then that's why they can grow more. And these are the ones that were containing these resistant genes that they saw the increase on. So further along, they also kind of confirmed these study results in mice, Mm -hmm. or they looked at the same kind of things in mice. And they found the same sorts of results. They interestingly found that it was different antibiotic resistance genes that were increasing Mm -hmm. again, which is kind of consistent you know mice have different microbiome yeah. microbiomes mm-hmm. and it's different bacterial strains that increase again after the mm-hmm. probiotic treatment after antibiotic treatment but all in all i think this was a very well done study kind of looking through everything like i said the first thing that struck me was that it's relatively small sample sizes mm-hmm. hard to do these things maybe on a lot of people so that of course that there's reasons for that i mean yeah those invasive kind of testing like colonoscopies is not something that yeah, doing colonoscopies on healthy individuals is maybe a hard sell i forgot to mention they also brought in towards the end as we've said before on this podcast antibiotic resistance genes just being present doesn't necessarily mean they're dangerous and mm-hmm. uh, they tend to come from nature that's kind of the situation but if they're associated with mobile genetic elements that can make these antibiotic resistance genes leave this non-threatening strain that they're in and move to a pathogen or a opportunistic pathogen that might infect a patient of course then it becomes relevant for human health And they did find that some of these resistance genes were associated with mobile genetic elements, meaning that they could move between strains. Theoretically, they didn't see this happen, but they saw kind of the framework that needs to be there for it to happen. Exactly. They mentioned that, you know, the fact that there were antibiotic resistance genes present in these probiotic strains could be a concern, Mm -hmm. depending on the situation. They didn't see them cause a problem in this study, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. Mm -hmm. Of course. Uh, It does need to be regulated, basically, if I understood their intent. Yeah. Was kind of what they were trying to say. Mm -hmm. And that it's complicated, you know, just because there aren't resistance genes coming in from the probiotics doesn't necessarily mean there isn't an increase in resistance genes. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a problem until it is. You know, there was a little bit the feeling that I got was like, this doesn't have to be anything, but it could be. (laughs) And I I also like that by the end of the article, they try to you know, connect this full study and results with with already available data sets of Mm -hmm. people taking probiotics in different situations. And they, of course, came up with the shortcoming that the majority of this data is based on stool samples, which we already know maybe is not the full picture. But also they already know that the resistance or not resistance by the individual to be colonized by these probiotic strains might also have an effect on how this relationship between antibiotic, probiotic and the commensal bacteria plays a role. So all this kind of information was missing to make um, educated guessing of what was happening on those patients. And they even go further saying that perhaps the differences between individual to individual are important and doing some sort of study individually metagenomics of samples of the gut could help us determine if someone is going to have a problem with an increase in resistant genes in their gut microbiome or the resistome Mm -hmm. as we call it. So on and all is a very in-depth and interesting article that we, we were able to come across. And I really like that more and more in-depth studies on how antibiotic treatment 
affects our health are coming out. Yeah. And and in this case, I mean, also looking at ways to mitigate the problem, both. Yeah. I found it to be an interesting result that fecal transplant and spontaneous recovery seemed in these patients to be relatively sufficient for what they're looking at. I mean, they weren't necessarily looking at things like, oh, did these patients develop C. diff or something like that? They were looking at the resistome. Mm-hmm. But in this case, I don't recall there being a huge difference between these kinds of mm-hmm. treatments after antibiotic treatment or these kinds of, how do you say? Recovery aids, yeah. And it's worth saying that this is an open access article too. So read away. There's a ton more data than what we actually talked about here. It's uh, We they kind of give the highlights. Mm-hmm. Is it just me or there are more and more open access articles from this big... I feel like that from the time that we've been looking. I don't know if I'm biased that I'm looking for open access articles sometimes or yeah. like which computer I'm searching on <laughs> leads think, me to open I access articles. I think maybe it's also due to the pandemic. A lot of people working from home, remote work. It kind of makes sense to make more things open access. I know that a lot yeah. of uh, journals, you have to pay more to make an article open access. But I think research funders and uh, principal investigators they also are more prone to want to publish open access which I is say, i think nice. i've seen that more i have very little experience with this but if i understand right more funding agencies or organizations are also requiring open access publication with their financing which is a pretty great push i mean it's nice to have all these things open to everybody and completely with my lazy but trying to look up these articles it's nice to be able to do it on any computer and not have to log in through the university yeah indeed so with that, I think we're done for this month and yeah. we will be back with you on September month, back into yes. a fully academic year, the beginning of the year. We've almost year. made it through the supper. Yeah, almost. <laughs> it's sad. <laughs> kind of. I hope it stays a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. We're sensitive up here in the north. It gets cold fast. <laughs> it's true. But it, when it gets hot, it feels very hot, <laughs> I have to yes. say. Yes, it's been very hot. We've been... Had more than enough sun and heat this year. I me. lost my heat-resistant phenotype. <laughs> now I'm like very sensitive to it. <laughs> yeah, I complain about the cold, but I actually appreciate it. Yeah. One of the few people who chose to move to almost the Arctic Circle. <laughs> All right, guys. I hope you have a great month and see you back soon. See you. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.